And as we've seen God bless us numerically, growing us numerically, spiritually, and so forth, one of the things we knew that we needed to be challenged in is if we were going to be followers of Christ, we needed to be find ourselves with people in tough positions where God found himself at. And when we begin to look at the Christmas story afresh, we see that God himself put on flesh in such a unique way to be with people that many of us aren't naturally around. Um, that we see in week one, that we look at the situation of uh, a, an unwanted pregnancy and what does it look like for Christ to come and be a part of the life of Mary and come through uh, her for the world and the, for the hope of the world. And given the economic situation of her, and not only her, but when God revealed himself, ultimately the good news to the shepherds. And knowing that shepherds in that day, we looked at they were the poorest of the poor, that many people didn't want to be around them. And yet God says, these are the people that I'm going to show good news to and then last week we looked at Jesus as a refugee and being able to understand the plight of Christ and even those in our own community and our own city. And then this morning we get an opportunity to look at Jesus as the people's champ and ultimately how he's a God of all people, ultimately that would come to him in repentance and faith. But primarily looking at two people that Luke gives us, and that is looking at the man uh, of Simeon and also the woman Anna, um, both elderly people, both full of faith, de devout, righteous people, and what we can learn from them as we look to our elders for their wisdom if they've been walking with the Lord and ultimately see who Christ is. And so that's ultimately it. And there was a poem to me that convicted me as I thought about us as a people. And the poem is taken from Matthew 25. Um, we don't know who the writer is, so I wrote it. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it was really convicting um, talking about caring for the least of these. And um, here's what it says. What, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club to discuss my hunger. I was in prison, and you went to your chapel to pray for my release. I was naked, and you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your wealth, your health. I was homeless, and you delivered a sermon on the shelter of God's love. I was lonely, and you left me alone to attend church. You seem so close to God but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. And if you look at what Matthew writes in his gospel in the 25th chapter, it was Jesus is speaking, and he tells people, when you fed or you didn't feed the hungry, you fed me or you didn't feed me. When you gave water to the thirsty, you gave water to me. When you visit me in prison, when you visit those in prison, you, you visited me, and they said, wait a minute, when, when did all this happen? He goes, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And Jesus not only just personifies himself with the least of these, but he says that's what it means to serve him. And so it's not just gathering together and singing songs and having offerings which are beautiful, but it's being followers of Christ in the areas and the spaces and the people in whom Christ would lead us. And so that was the genesis of this sermon, of, the, of this series. And it has been challenging and it's supposed to be challenging because ultimately Christmas in itself was very challenging for people, and it will be until Christ comes and returns. And as those of us in this room who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we have to follow him in every area and every space that he calls us to follow him. Amen? So we're going to continue in our series this morning. Uh, we do not have the little Britney Spears mic. It's been broke, so I have the handheld. So I told everybody, usually when I have a handheld, I usually go to rap or comedy. And so um, just two things I do in my spare time. So get ready. Uh, why don't you guys go ahead and direct your, direct your attention to the screen.
mine. That's what I call them. Disgraced. Burdens. Foreigners. Nameless faces. Last. Least. Lost. Lonely in crowds and masses. Now. Now. Known. Whispers. Hushed. Called. By name. Welcome. Your true home. Plenty of space here for rest. Least of these now adopted. Sons and daughters, daughters and sons. Abundant love now lavished. Come, open invitation. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Fear not. Good news. Great joy for all people. If you have your Bible, I would like for you to turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 all the way to 36 this morning. Again, Luke chapter 2, hold your spot there. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised. One of our ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. We'd love for you to have one as you follow along with us this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow in an understanding and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2, looking again at verses 22 to 36. Now bear with me, I'm going to read this in its entirety so that we have the context of our, of our word this morning. Luke chapter 2. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, opens, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed this child. This child is appointed. And behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for the sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, who was the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask a blessing upon the teaching of your word and the reading of your word, that it would not stay abstract, but it would be very fluid in our lives. Lord, that it would have implications on our daily walks and our talks as we work and as we play and as we recreate, as we look forward and or dread the possibility and thoughts of being with family in this season. May your word, Lord, satisfy. May your word, as it promises that it does not do, not return void, but water our lives in such a way that you would produce the growth in us by your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your son, Jesus, as a baby that we remember in this season. May he be elevated and may his name be exalted, not just in word, but in the deeds of our hands and our feet. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One of the best days of my entire life was February 17th, 2009. My wife was seven and a half months pregnant, eight months pregnant, about a month before the baby was supposed to be here. Um, She woke me up in the middle of the night. It was raining. And one of the best nights to sleep in in Arizona is when it's raining and you don't have to be outside, right? You pretend you're somewhere else other than Arizona for those two days of the year, right? So I'm sleeping, she wakes me up and she says, baby, I, uh, my, my water broke. And I was like, just go back to bed, I'll fix it in the morning, right? No, no, I didn't say that. I woke up, I'm excited because we know the baby's here. So we rush to the hospital, we get to the hospital, we get everything checked in, um, it's just like the movies. And, and, uh, and we, we um, have a few complications and whatnot, and then finally we're in the, the delivery room, and um, I, you know, I got my bag already ready, because they had told us to always have a bag ready for when you got to the hospital, you had everything you need, Sports Illustrated, Gatorade, Snicker, things like that. <laughs> Stay hydrated, because it's a lot of work, even for the guys, you know what I mean? The struggle is real. Just joking, women, just joking. Those of you who have babies, uh, I'm joking. So I'm there, and the doctor asked me to leave the room two to three times. Um, because I get very nauseous in situations like that. And, uh, and but I, I, true story. And so, but I stayed. And then when the baby was born, our oldest son Noah was born, I was so excited, so excited. There was adrenaline, all sorts of emotions, excitement. You, you wanna tell everybody, it's as if nobody else in the hospital had had a baby, uh, ever, right? And, and you want everybody to know, like, I, I, I have a child. I have a child. Not just a child, I have a son. And that was a big deal because I really wanted a son. When, my, when I was growing up, my grandma would always tell me, who had already gone past on to be with the Lord, you, you need to have a son because you're the last steward. And so I was the last one in my family that carried the name stewards. No pressure. So you got to have a son. My, my dad's youngest brother was married, but unfortunately passed away before he had any children. My dad's oldest brother had eight daughters. <laughs> And then decided to get a son. He ended up with 11 daughters, right? At that point, you know the Lord has said, not you. <laughs> not you, right? 11 daughters. So, so, so my cousins, right, on my dad's side, all girls. And so, so we finally have this, this baby. And, and you, go, you go out of the room and you go tell everybody who's there. And my, um, you know, my, my mom was there. And then my wife's parents are the grandparents. Let me tell you, as excited as you are about babies, 
as you have a baby, grandparents just may be more excited. And what I mean by that is their excitement has been building up way longer. Like they've been waiting, and especially if they've been Christian parents, they've, they've prayed for your spouse. Whether you like it or not, they've prayed for the spouse. And you married someone that didn't answer their prayers, but God's worked through that, right? And so, <laughs> so, so they've, they've prayed for your spouse, and then they desire to have grandkids. And when they get grandkids, my thought is maybe grandparents like being grandparents because they don't have to be parents to your kids, because if your grandparents, your kids' grandparents, or anything like our, our kids, they don't parent them the way that they parent you. I felt like our parents were like, no, don't do that, no, can't do that, can't go there, can't watch that. And then now with the grandkids, they're like, how come the baby can't do that? He can do that. He can run out in the middle of the streets if he wants to. This world is for him, right? And it's just like, what, did you quit? Like, what, what happened? That grandparents are excited about the kids. And so we, we, we actually told our parents with the first child, the worst mistake we made, hey, we want to go home with this child, and we don't want you guys in the home. We want you guys staying at a hotel and, you know, outside, because we want to get used to what it's like for us to be parents. We have to do this, and um, our family biologically does not live here, and so we wanted to just, you know, you know we, we knew what we were doing. We had been five minutes into parenting, and so... Um, and we were going to go home with this child. How hard could it be? He was only six pounds. We got six pounds. We got food heavier than that. We can take care of this. <laughs> and then what we communicated to them was, why don't you guys stay on the outskirts, stay on the margins, and just be excited and just look in on this. But don't participate. Don't have any influence. Yeah, you guys are the reason why we're here. But we just want you to be on the outside. And that offended our parents. It was the first time me and my mom really went after it. Um, and did, I just didn't understand. And nor were we ready to take care of this six-pound baby alien-looking thing that we, that, we, that we brought home. I feel like in, in our society, unlike the Jewish culture, is that people who are elderly are treated like that. We know you've lived. We know that you have wisdom. We know that you've done far more than we can probably think, ask, or imagine. And you lived in a time probably way more difficult than, than the time in which we live in. Many of us are actually standing on your shoulders in economic success and education because you went without. I mean, all of these things, but could you please just stand here and be excited for what we're doing and how fast the world is moving and it's kind of not your deal. And so that's what we'll do. We see this economically that the, the, the states have to pay far more for those who are in um, homes because many family members are not taking them in and caring for them. We see this in the marketplace that people who have worked for years that are trying to find other jobs are usually getting looked over because of their age and so forth and usually being replaced by younger people in which we all benefit from, myself included. This happens in the church and especially a church like ours where there are a lot of younger people um, a lot of people who get opportunities as young, and somehow when you get opportunities as someone who's young, you feel like you've made it, and you haven't made anything. We just happen to be standing on people's shoulders who we need to ask for their wisdom, their guidance, their instruction, their input to participate um, in the, our lives. Amen? The Hebrew culture, they got that because the Bible taught that. It's something we can implement and say, can we listen to the people who have gone before us? And now I'm talking about the 34-year-olds, right? 
Like literally the people who are much older than people who are 34, which is relatively brilliantly young, right? FYI, right? So we have to listen. There, there, was, there was this quote I saw this morning, um, and I thought it was pretty funny here about, about listening to the respecting our elders. It says, respect your elders. They made it through high school without Google or Wikipedia, right? <laughs> Which is pretty. Someone's like, really? They did? How? What we have in Luke is that Luke himself, in in telling this Christmas story, is that Luke shows for us how Jesus becomes the people's champ. But before he becomes the champ, he points to two people. And the people that he points to is first is a man named Simeon. You can call him Simeon or you can call him Simeon. I call him Simeon because he's from around the block, right? And then we have Anna. Both of them are elderly men and women who are faithful to God, Um, People in whom we should open up our ears and shut our mouth and listen to. That they could be for us examples of what it looks like to respond to Jesus Christ and what does it look like to have a longing and a desire and faithfulness and obedience to see, know, and follow Jesus. And so what I want to do first is look at these people. And first looking at Simeon here. So if you have your Bibles open, jump with me to verses 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation and that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And so here's what we see about Simeon. What we know is he's a Hebrew man, he's a Jewish man, um, that his, ma- his name literally means to hear And so he's able to hear from God that knowing that he was a a Jewish man and knowing that he was faithful in his in his in his old age is that he would have known the Torah. And that's the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, uh, Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Almost forgot him. Right. He would have known the Torah. He would have known the law of God. He would have cherished these things. And it says a few things about this man. First, it says that he was righteous. That means that he was obedient to the ways of God. That there was something of the word of God that when he heard it, he listened to it. That when God said to do something, he did it. When God said to restrain uh, restrain or abstain from something, he abstained from it. That he didn't go there. That there was a faithfulness of this man. And what's brilliant about this for us to understand is this is not someone who had a short walk with the Lord. This is someone who had a long, strong, fruitful walk with the Lord. And when you sit down with people like that, you might actually learn something, right? So I grew up, and my grandfather was our preacher. And truth be told, I never really liked him. I thought he was mean and so forth. Um, He would teach us. He would instruct us. There were moments where he was really, really uh, funny, and there was moments where, where, like, the kids just weren't allowed to be in. I mean, like, like the way he was raised is kids didn't belong around adults. And he'd always say, hey, get these kids out of here when grown folks is talking. They don't need to be in here. Your little nosy self can go outside. That's what they say. I'm like, we just want to hear what you're saying, pops, which we call them, right? He, when he passed away, I learned way more about him 
because I just knew the preacher guy. And I knew, I knew a man who loved God. At his funeral, I found out why he was always so hard on us by just thinking football was everything to life. Because he himself had played football and given himself to it. That he himself had been an all-state player in the state of California and signed a letter of intent to play at UCLA and never got a chance to step foot on campus because he was caught selling drugs. That he wasn't always the preacher man. That, that when he would talk about family, that he knew it because he actually was married before he was married to my, grand, my grandma. And that it is old other family that only knew him from his old life that ultimately would never forgive him for the sins that he had committed. And he had started a new family when he had become a Christian and he cherished it more than he can ever imagine. I didn't know these things. What I did know about him was that he was committed to the word of God. If you looked at his Bible, right, his Bible, not his Bible app, when you looked at his Bible, it looked like he had taken his Bible and jumped into a swimming pool and then pulled it out and let it dry. That's how much it was read. It wasn't so much about how he was going to take the Bible and see how it fit into his life, but ultimately how his life was going to be able to fit into the story of God. That Simeon right here shows us this picture that Luke himself goes, here's what we all know about him. He's righteous. He's devout. He gives himself to the word of God. He desires to do what God calls him to do. And then it says the spirit was upon him. The spirit was upon him. Now, the spirit in this particular day did not, um, before, um, before Pentecost, right, Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to here in January. Um, before that, the way the spirit would work is the spirit would set upon a prophet or a prophetess or a king or a priest or a person. And, but the spirit did not live with them and dwelling in them as the spirit does in our lives now. And so for him to be a man of the spirit showed that he was a prophet and that he listened to the spirit. The spirit was upon him. That God moved mightily through him. That he was near God. He was close to God. He listened to God. And he obeyed God. My, my assumption is, is if you, if you could step back into Simeon's life, there probably were some young, some young bucks around Jerusalem, right? They probably used to hang, hang out at JSU, Jerusalem State University, right? And he used to see these guys, and he would try to tell them a little bit, but he wouldn't listen. My, my grandfather used to always tell us, he'd say, you know, what it... What it meant to be black for us is different for you. So you guys running around here with your pants, sagging off your behind, looking at your fruit of the loom. So he saw it said that. It wasn't like that. Because in my day, we was dressing sharp. We had a bow tie. We was looking good. And I was just going like, nobody wants to wear a tie to church. And today, I'm wearing a tie to church. Right? I feel like Simeon would have probably been trying to give them the wisdom but, but maybe the younger guys didn't see it. Maybe they were too busy doing their own thing, and they missed out ultimately on what it meant to follow and see God and faithfulness. But Luke doesn't want us to miss it, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss it. So, so it's been inspired into the Bible that we may see it and be able to learn from who Simeon is. But that, that, that was Simeon. Simultaneously in Jerusalem, in some ways, on the other side of the temple and the way it was constructed, there was a particular area where women could go to. And that's where we meet the second person, probably my favorite person in this story, potentially even my favorite person in the whole New Testament, other than Jesus Christ, of course. And so if you look here at verse 36, here's what it says. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, 
of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to, to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so we have here is we have this woman. She's 84 years old, right? 84 years old of walking with God. When people try to describe what is attractive um, for men to a woman, and when the Bible actually talks about it, it usually speaks of character, So this is an 84-year-old single woman who's got her game on, right? So she has walked with God for a long time. She was married at one moment. Um, It lets us know that her husband passed away and that she remained single as a widow. Now, some of us, she probably, she, I can imagine her, like, in some Bible study, they was probably doing some Beth Moore Bible study, and then somebody was like, hey, I know this guy, you know what I mean, he's a little bit older, he's on the other side of the temple, he's also a widow too, he's good, he's godly, you, you, can, we, can, we, can we set you guys up or whatnot? And Anna was like, I don't need a man, right? <laughs> like, I don't need a man, like, I am completely satisfied with God, he's doing some stuff through me. Now, that's not to say that she would have been wrong. And that's not to say that if you have a man, you can't worship God. That is to say that somehow we were able to glean from people, especially like Anna, to see the consistency of her life and devotion to God. That he didn't say one time she was at the temple. He said, no, every day this woman was showing up and praying. That this woman was fasting. That this woman loved God. And when she saw Christ, what did she do? She told everybody about him. She was an evangelist. She was a prophetess. She was walking with God and had been for years. And I don't know if you've had the privilege of sitting with a woman who's walked with God for 40 to 50 plus years. Who's gone through the tragedy of losing a husband or some other tragedy or losing a child or going through some war or going through something and to hear her talk about her relationship with God. That if you have that opportunity, we might find ourselves that we're spending our lives worrying about the things we should not worry about. Because when we sit with our people who have the grayer hairs and have walked with the Lord longer, the things that they worry about are not the things that we worry about. The things that they're concerned about are not the things that we're concerned about. In fact, many of them say, we don't worry about the small things. Where many of us make the small things the main thing. And in making it the main thing, we miss out on the ultimate thing. And that is the right relationship with Jesus. We, we have so looked at our culture, in Christianity culture, and we have tried so hard to not um, look weird that we tried so hard to not be overly churchy, which I totally get, that we tried so hard to show the world around us that are not followers of Christ that we are like them, that they're actually used to understanding that we are not like them, that maybe we should actually show what it looks like to follow Jesus. (laughs) Maybe there should be some uniqueness in such a way that says, yeah, yeah, we know you guys are Christian because like Anna, you show up every single day praying and fasting. 
there, there's moments where we sit down with people as pastors and leaders and so forth, and, and, and there's something in their life going on. It's like, what do I need to do? I know you're going to say, pray, read my Bible. Is there anything else? No. There isn't. It, it, there's no other revelation. Jesus didn't say, oh, yeah, 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 tell them, tell them this, right? No. That when we look at the scriptures, as these men and women, and particularly Anna and Simeon, they looked fo- toward the Christ, and they were praying and fasting. And now those of us who respond to the work and the ministry and the teaching and the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension and given of the spirit of Christ, we pray and we fast and we serve and we love. It's what the people of God do. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where there weren't men around, but yet they were praying women. My grandma on my dad's side, she was a praying woman. My grandma on my mom's side, she still is a praying woman. And her prayers are amazing because you can hear the life in her prayers. You can hear the struggle in her prayers. I can't wait to fly home on Christmas back to the south where my grandma's going to pray. And it's going to be a long prayer, but it's going to be good. And there's going to be so much of life in that prayer that I can never pray. Because I don't know what it was like of being a young black girl being raised in the early part of this century in Mississippi. And yet to still hold on to a faith in God. Right? That I happen to have the privilege of growing up around a mother who prayed. Around women who didn't have men and yet were prayers. And it's not to say that if you have a man, you don't need to pray. If you have a man, you need to pray more. (laughs) Right? So we see these pictures of the, the, the life of faithfulness that we should long for, for those of us in this room who follow Jesus. It's the uniqueness of saying they're just looking forward to Jesus. We have him. They're longing for the day in which he would come. We know that he's come. They're barely having the spirit ascend in such a way to, to, uh, to, um, to touch them at moments. We have the spirit who are in us fully. They look forward to grace. We revel in it. And if that's the case, then we should look more like Anna and more like Simeon, and we should look to the people in our lives who are more like Anna and more like Simeon in order that we may be faithful, ultimately, to the champ who we know to be Christ. Amen? So the first time we had our firstborn, no grandparents, all right? Bad mistake, needed them, and so forth. The second child we had, we called everybody. We called people who weren't even our grandparents, Come be grandparents to our kids. We need all the help. In fact, we're going to leave, um, and you guys can have, can have them. I mean, when, when our second son, Eli, who came out looking like a little puppy, and so we call him, we call him Pup, or we call him Puppy Chulo, but that's a whole other deal. But when, when Pup came into this world, it was like we called everybody. My aunt, everybody who wants to come, come. Stay at our house. We're going to be in the room. Um, you guys take the kids. In fact, if you want them for the rest of the year, take them. Um, and then bring us back. You know, you know I mean, that, that, like how much we needed because we wanted to know what could we expect. Because the first one was a shock to me. And the biggest shock was how children rob you of your sleep forever, right? Like you just, people, when do I go back? You don't. It's over, right? It's it. You quit, right? So what else can we expect of this child? When we look at, at, at Jesus, we look at Um, Simeon's response to Jesus as we look at Anna's response to Jesus we begin to see what we can expect of the child and of the champ and I I I titled this the people's champ not because I like boxing it's because I love that phrase the people's champ 
And if you look at the very, very highly academic website, Urban Dictionary, and, 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 you, t- and you put in um, the people's champ, what it's going to tell you is it's someone who comes from the neighborhood, um, who begins to care for and give back to his family, his friends, and even random people. Like he's somebody you know. And if you've ever had somebody remotely famous come from your hometown, you're proud of it. You lie like as if, yeah, we were good friends. We used to hang out all the time. It's like, no, you didn't. But he is from your hometown. Then Jesus becomes for us that, that the people's champ. And so you have this, this picture of you ever watch boxing or MMA or one of those things. The champ or the fighter usually comes out with the whole entourage, right? There's like beats. Um, he's excited. He's sweating. He's like, yeah, I mean, just looking fierce, right? Like I'm ready to take this other dude out. And here we have Jesus. He comes to the temple that day and he's got a pacifier. Right? Like, this is not at all what we would think of a, of, of a champ. And yet, this is what we see. So if you turn back here to, to verses 22 at the very beginning, it says this, as we know a little bit about of this Jesus and this champ. And when the time had came for their purifications, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What this means is, is Jesus now 40 days old. His mom is now pure for for that moment after childbirth. There's about 40 days at which a woman um, has to be cleansed and then she she now can go worship at the temple. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus and as well as Numbers, um, you will see that there's certain things you're supposed to do to this firstborn son. And so you would bring him to the temple, and what most families would do was they would sacrifice a lamb. And, and there was actually concession made that if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, that you would have turtle doves or pigeon. And what Luke is trying to point out is Jesus came from a working poor family. That, that Jesus' dad had a job. He had personal responsibility. He worked hard, but it still just wasn't enough. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I told you guys gave me this handheld. This is... So, so that's what we know about Jesus, that, that Jesus himself, we understand his socioeconomic background um, and his family, but they're faithful. They're doing all that God had called them to do. Well, then when Simeon sees him in verse 20, uh, 28, it says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. I would have loved to have been there. Like here he is walking up and the spirit was like, there he is. And you have this little teenage 13, 14-year-old woman holding this 40-day-year-old baby. Many of us don't bring our kids to church for like 17 months until, uh, you know, everyone's cleared of diseases and stuff, right? She's 40 days years old, the savior of the world, and then this, this old man comes and goes, hey, baby girl, let me see that baby, right? Takes the baby into his arms. Love to see that. And he says this, oh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He said, I can die now, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He knew in that moment, this is it. This is everything that I've lived for and now I can die. That when you realize that the longings of your hearts can only be satisfied in the salvation of the Lord and the salvation of the Lord could never come from anything that you can do by your hands or your thought or your intellect or your will or your money or your lack of money, but can only be found in Jesus Christ, that the cavity that we all have in our hearts finds its fulfillment ultimately in this baby. 
who would rise to be our Savior, who would die to be our Savior, who would ultimately rise from the dead to be our Lord and Savior of all of creation, that ultimately there's satisfaction. In the words of C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Weight of Glory, he says, alas, the door that we've been knocking upon our whole lives is now open. And so we, we have Simeon that says, Lord, I can go because I've seen what you've promised. I've seen the fulfillment of your story. I've seen that everything in which the world has longed for and has never found has now found us. And it is everything in this person, the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. And he, says, he, say, he said he is bringing salvation. He says that you've prepared in the presence of not some people, not an intellect people, not a people from one side of the track, not a people that have, not a people that just have not, but from all peoples. And if you did the literary work in Greek and Hebrew and in Spanish and in Ebonics, it literally means all people. <laughs> Verse 32, he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. When it says a light of revelation to the Gentiles, that means the Gentiles, they did not have the promises. They didn't have the Old Testament promises. And so they didn't know. They didn't have that revelation. So he now becomes a revelation of grace that people outside of the covenant people may now be a part of it in Christ. But then he says it's the glory of Israel, meaning everything that the covenant promised of which Israel had failed in that Christ himself has fulfilled and will fulfill. And he would bring both light and glory of revelation to all people who would find themselves worshiping and following this baby. And then he looks at his mom, and he says in verse 33, And to his father and his mother, he marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. I don't know why he didn't say it to Joseph. I think because he knows that Joseph is not going to outlive Jesus. And I think he knows that Jesus is not going to outlive Mary. And that Mary herself, who had heard those beautiful words of the angel, who had sung that beautiful song, knows that she's going to feel the physical and spiritual pain of the baby that I brought in this world is not mine. But ultimately, he belongs to the world, and the world belongs to him. In order for him to gain the world, he's going to have to lose his life. And so Simeon, in his last parting words, looks at Mary and says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And as a sign, and, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He, he's saying that this, this son of yours, he's going to be for the rising of many who were downtrodden but found themselves hope in him. But he's going to be the fall for many who would never trust but yet trust in themselves instead of the work of the Lord. That he's come to expose and bring light to darkness. And not that, that the light that he brings is to, to shoo us all away to scatter, but that we would draw closer to light and in him that we would find transformation. That in his light that we would find life. That in his death, we would find eternal life. That ultimately, we would begin to trust in him. But he's being honest with Mary. And he says, and it's even going to pierce through your own soul. That following Jesus, that loving Jesus, is going to be a joyous yet painful and hard experience. That though it's joy to the world, 
that joy is not always with smiling, but sometimes expressed in tears. That that joy is not always in receiving, but sometimes it's in loss. And yet, salvation is still in this man. In the God-man, Jesus Christ. I love how honest the Bible is. I love how honest God is with us. He's honest with us. And he's given us himself that he may be with us. And what I love about the Bible, and it shows a, a pure Jesus, a Jesus himself that chooses to leave the comforts of heaven, to move into this world, to be with this woman like Mary, to be with people who are migrant workers, to be with people who are refugees, to be with people who are rich and poor, and that he chooses a neighborhood to come from. Eugene Peterson's in his paraphrase of, of the incarnation in uh, John chapter 114 says it best, and he says this. He says that God put on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. That God put on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He didn't move into the gated community. There was no swimming pools. But in fact, the cultural narrative of where he was from and where he chose to live, they says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what we learn from the scripture is the best that ever could. The, the best good ever can come from Nazareth and out of Nazareth into the whole world. And so our, our response to this is ultimately to rejoice in the way that Simeon did and also to rejoice in the way that Anna did. If you look at the latter part of verse 38, and coming up at this very hour, so after he said this about him, at the very hour, uh, um, Simeon is just getting done, and Anna rolls up on the scene, and she sees him, and then she sa it says this, and the coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him, of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That word, waiting for redemption, that redemption word is deliverance or liberation. That she finally said, it's here. That this is the one who came to preach good news to the poor and to free the captives, to bring salvation and light to the Gentiles. And it's none other than the man, Jesus Christ. When we church, those of us in this room who are followers of Christ, when we begin to look at Jesus and say we follow him and we've experienced this grace, this side of where Anna and where Simeon were on, this side of grace that is permeated in our lives, that we've been filled and nudged on by the Spirit, that if we are going to follow him, that means we have to resemble him. And the way that we resemble him is not by just singing and lifting up our voices. Those are actually the means of grace in which he nourishes us. The way we're going to resemble him is not just by hearing sermons. That is the means of grace in which he nourishes us. It's not just by taking communion. Those are the means of grace in which he nourishes us. But he says that when you treat the people in whom I treated, like me, you've treated me well. When you see the hungry, would you feed them and tell them that Jesus is the bread of life? When you see the thirsty, would you actually offer them something to drink and tell them they could thirst no more by trusting in him. That ultimately, that we don't get to choose just to be spiritual or just to be physical. But if we follow ultimately that God himself became man and we're going to follow him in this world, then tangibly as we respond to the good news of Jesus, we may just be an imperfect sign and an imperfect signpost of what it truly means that God himself is bringing and is in Christ joy to the world. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given to us more than we can think, ask, or imagine. That you've given us men and women as beautiful yet imperfect examples of following a perfect Savior in Jesus.
that you have extended to us an overwhelming sense of grace that is manifested through the gospel of Jesus Christ that is empowering our lives by the Spirit and is satisfying our hearts with the love of the Father. Lord, that you've given us a community in which you've called the church to be witnesses to what you are up to in this world, to truly be your hands and your feet. So we thank you, Lord, that you challenge us, and we confess that too many political ideologies have actually set the temperature and of our culture as opposed to us, Lord, aligning ourselves with you, Lord. If we're honest, Lord, we find ourselves being far more of a thermostat, Lord, or a thermometer, and, and just shifting with the culture and its waves as opposed to a thermostat that sets the culture, that tells the world in word and deed what you are like. We thank you, Lord, that even in the mist, you show us grace that in this baby, we have found life. Even though this baby would have to give his life in order for us to have it. We are indebted, we are thankful, and we are grateful for who you are in the person of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.